documentary that many are talking about on Wham. I have been down the Wham hole and I've just popped back up. The song was The Rabbit Hole. Much better. Yeah. This song was written before Wham even had a name by George Michael and Andrew Ridgely. George Michael had a big dispute with the first sax player brought in by the legendary Muscle Shoals producer Jerry Wexler. The saxophonist was playing it perfectly but wasn't hitting that magic ephemeral vibe that George Michael wanted. But Steve Gregory came in and he was the ninth sax player to attempt the riff. He pulled it off and the world, Heather Roy, was given careless whisper. What a tune, huh? <laughs> yes, it is great. That is 100% not what Heather was saying before the mics came on. <laughs> I got no, that sense. you said, you said... Or Wallace always chooses terrible songs, and you said mm-hmm. yes. I said sometimes. <laughs> I'm, look, I'm courageous enough to be honest with you, Wallace, and your music sucks, and I really want you to know that there is a decade outside of the 80s. Well, Wallace played Wuthering Heights once, and that was great. You know, again are, from the eighties. We are oh, talk, yeah. we are but, talking look. about the Rosetta Stone of music, and you you calling it? You saying it sucks? Honestly, David, get a careless life. whisper is the Rosetta Stone of music. It's that's it's, just it's, a string of words. Like it's like someone's just learnt of the existence of the Rosetta Stone the and problem, wants to work it into conversation. The problem is, David, you're younger than Wallace and me, and you, people are most influenced by music they hear between no, eighteen and Heather, twenty-two. It's a great song, and I'm my sure my favourite era of music is actually the mid to late seventies. I think you're an outlier. Yeah, but regardless, <laughs> yeah. Wallace always plays the most dire <laughs> rubbish. It, like Wham has some good songs. That is, that is not one. Them. Here we go. Look, my uh, Bob uh, James has listened to the wrong show. He says, I'm loving the panellists today. Um, so you probably got the wrong station, uh, James, and poor Nikki there. Uh, is, people agree with me. Thank you. Careless Whisper is the most perfectly constructed song ever written. It's D minor 7, G7, B major 7. What's the name of the radio? Great radio reading out the tablature of a guitar. <laughs> Just phenomenal. All right, uh, you're on the panel, RNZ National, David Cormack, Heather Roy with me today. Convicted murderer Lauren Dickerson is now waiting to find out what her sentence will be for killing her three young children. Yesterday, 11 of the 12 jurors of the High Court in Christchurch rejected her defence of insanity and infanticide. Justice Cameron Manders said to the jury, uh, you've made a considerable sacrifice in fulfilling this crucial role. I want to take the opportunity to say to you that you can take considerable pride in the way you've carried out your duties over all these weeks. As I have uh, already noted, this has been a particularly hard and taxing trial at so many levels, and the community is indebted to you for the service that you have performed on its behalf. All that remains is for me to wish you well. You may now get on with your normal lives. 
And yesterday when the verdict broke, Paula Penfold on the panel raised the issue of just how tough the toll would be on juries in facing these types of confronting trials. With us is Michael Bott, barrister, who's been involved with somewhere between two to 300 jury trials. Michael, thanks for taking the time today. Oh, good afternoon, Wallace. Good afternoon, panel members. Just echoing Justice Manda, you've made a considerable sacrifice in this crucial role. As a juror, being part of a trial like this, I imagine it would stay with you for life. That would be right. You know, there are often photographs, forensic evidence, and then you've got the detailed um, coronial reports in relation to autopsies, those sorts of things in the forensic photographs. Um, but it's an essential role that these members of the public, our community, fulfil. It's a person's right when they're facing a lengthy period of imprisonment to elect a trial by jury, and it's a fundamental right. And it's important that they have the right to be judged by, uh, in trial by a community of their peers. And it is a sacrifice, but it's one that New Zealanders have fulfilled. For well over a hundred years, I can recall a trial last year. I was reading about it last night, actually, and uh, one of the uh, jurors. Uh, it was a particularly uh, distressing trial. He just stood up and said in a loud voice, "I just can't take this," uh, and the, draw, the jury had to be disbanded. Are there cases where it might be just too traumatising, or evidence indeed too complicated for a jury trial? Well, arguably, there, there are cases like that. For example, a complex fraud or tax case where you've got thousands and thousands of documents and a range of financial experts competing arguments. It often requires specialist expertise and knowledge to sort the wheat from the chaff. And in those sorts of cases, there's a strong argument for judge alone. Uh, but also, in relation to trials where there's going to be torrid evidence, hard evidence in that sense. Uh, Jurors are often warned as to what's going to uh, be expected of them. And uh, I can well understand how for some people those sorts of things are traumatic. And obviously it's better to sort of sort those sort of people out who who can't do that. But it is a vital a vital thing that they, they, they do, a vital service for our community. OK, Michael, stay there. Let's bring in uh, Heather Roy. Yeah, thank you. I, I mean, I agree that it's an important part of our, our um, a system and I wouldn't like to see that go. But, um, you know, I just wouldn't have wanted to have been part of that trial, uh, that jury. And I think that these things are so well documented now that you can read as much or as little as you want and I deliberately read very little about that trial because I thought it was just too disturbing but for a juror you're there, you have to participate and Mm. you have to make a decision at the end of it and what a terrible decision to have had to have made yesterday Uh, Michael stay there we'll just bring in David as well Do we provide like wraparound services Mm. for uh, jurors? So is there that sort of like mental health support, I mean our mental health system's bung anyway for people needed at the best of times, but like, and I'm not just talking in the immediacy, like further on down the track, right, I imagine that there should there would surely be some people experiencing some PTSD from, from, from being jurors on particularly heinous trials like this, so I'm just wondering what, the, I've never been on a jury and I just don't know what the 
the sort of support and treatment we have. I'd like to think there is some giving mm. that they can literally drag you off the street and force you to be a juror. It's not literally dragging you off the street. You're chosen off the electoral roll. Yeah, but isn't there a law in New Zealand that if they're short of a, of a 12-person jury, they can literally go out onto the street and grab someone who just happens to be walking by? I'm pretty sure that law exists. In my, I'm coming into my third decade now in terms of the law and uh, never seen that done. I will defer to your experience. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm more interested in my more substantive point around the wraparound services that we provide well, to... Can I be honest and say that the fee that jurors get for their their really valuable services is bugger all? Yes, it's a token, and to give up your life for four weeks as as that particular jury did is as a sterling effort. But there have been longer trials as well. And the other thing, of course, is that sometimes people elect to be tried by judge alone because with a with a jury you don't get a, a verdict with reasons. But with a judge alone trial, you do. And sometimes that's to your advantage. I've done, for example, um, rape trials, sexual violence trials, where, I, where the client under advisement has selected a trial by judge alone and it's worked. Often we have jury trials and um, they work as well, but it's jolly handy to get a, a decision with reason that they would be appealed and, or else understood. But again, I'm just. Do you know? Do we provide support services for jurors after the after the fact? Uh, not to my knowledge, no. I I, I can't think of a particular Gosh. service. Mm. To be honest, but, you know, if, if there are if there, you know if people are traumatised, then there are particular. But you know, they're not even victims in terms of the definition. Uh, but there should be some kind of perhaps trauma counselling or assistance. One would one would think. Yes. Yeah, sorry, keep going, Michael. The other thing, of course, is that, for example, in the States, jurors are often questioned by, by both sides. That isn't the case here. You can challenge a jury. You've got, you've got four as-of-right challenges. It used to be six. Now it's four for the defence and the Crown. Then you've got challenges for cause, and that's, that's about it. Michael, um, there are quite a few coming through, and it does raise that issue of whether or not there are services available for jurors. Someone says, I was on a jury on a historical sex abuse uh, case uh, for half a week. My goodness, it was the worst experience of my life. Yes, that would be understandable. Mm. And also, of course, for a person who's accused of a crime who is presumed innocent, it may be traumatic, but also undoubtedly yeah. for the complainants. So it's not a nice thing for anyone to, to, to deal with. And for, I, I feel especially the same, for example, for the police who investigate these things, but also for the Crown lawyers and for the defence lawyers to be exposed to this, often day in and day out. It, it takes mm. a toll, and you've got to look after yourself. Very nice to have you on the programme. Uh, kia ora, Michael. Appreciate it. Um, and just as a just a different side note, we were talking about football earlier. Uh, just very briefly, um, you must be a very proud dad having CJ Bott um, doing so well as part of the uh, the New Zealand team there. Already gone? Very good. Super proud, um, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yes, All indeed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Michael Bott there, uh, barrister. 
Talking about that, oh, quite a few now, yes. Uh, I've been involved in two jury cases, both of a sexual nature. After the second one, I took advantage of the Justice Department funded counselling service. Mm, but I the case, something. The case mm. does still uh, hunt me. Uh, I, 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 another one, I was on a rape trial for three, mo- for three months ago, barely offered counselling services, three sessions by the system because... Uh, I asked for it. Uh, thank you so much for getting in touch and for your feedback this afternoon uh, on the panel. To this, Waka Kotahi is giving cameras at Roadworks a trial run to make them a safer environment for workers. Between 2017 and 2021, there were 43 fatal crashes and 287 serious injury crashes at roadside, roadwork sites rather. And a recent survey at a construction site on State Highway 1 found 76% of vehicles were speeding as they entered the temporary limit zone. 93% speeding as they left. Soon drivers caught exceeding these temporary speed limits in these areas could well be fined. Wendy Robertson is an expert in road safety as the national coordinator for the Driving Change Network. But Wendy is with us um, with her own views on the issue. Wendy, kia ora. Kia ora. How are you? Good. Do you welcome this new policy from uh, Waka Kotahi? Um, I don't mind it. I think um, it's a safety issue for the road uh, for the roading workers. And um, as a mum who has a, a son who is a road worker, um, I certainly welcome anything that's going to slow people down through um, through the road road sites. Um, but what I think is that that um, we need to be making those fines more of a deterrent. Um, a $30 fine for going 10 k's over the limit um, is not enough. It, it's more of an um, inconvenience for somebody or an annoyance. Um, let's make the fines higher so that they're a real deterrent and let's invest that money back into education so that people understand why they shouldn't be speeding and that it's about you know the road services and, and um, dangers to the workers. Can yeah. I jump in there? Yeah, go for so it. So one of my issues with anything that's punishable by a fine is that for a lot of people who are particularly wealthy, that just becomes a fee for doing the bad behaviour. And for some people who are less wealthy, it becomes a very disproportionate uh, impact on their life. And so I was just talking to Heather before the show, right? In Finland, they have a magnificent system where they scale up and down the the fine system depending on your income. And so there was a bloke uh, last week got done 126,000 euro uh, for a speeding offence because he's a very, very wealthy person. So I'm totally for anything that can you know help keep road workers safe but also i don't want it to operate in a system where some people it's barely noticeable at all and others it's the difference between eating that week so fines i i just have a real allergic reaction to and i just wanted to get that out wendy i i have a a different opinion i think um some fines that are out there um for example um if you're finding somebody for driving not on um with outside their licence conditions or something like that. For many people, they do that through necessity. But for things like speeding, that's a personal choice. Um, so nobody's making them speed. Heather? Mm, that's an interesting take. Um, my, my questions are more of a fundamental nature, I suppose. I think that behaviour... 
people behave in the right way when they see consistency. And one thing that really frustrates me is when you slow right down to 30 kilometres for sometimes up to about a kilometre stretch on the open road uh, and find that the roadworks, there's either nobody there doing any of the roadworks or the roadworks are obviously complete but the signs haven't been taken down. That's very frustrating. And it also means that every time people, when they've had that experience, approach the next set of roadworks, they think, oh, is this the same situation or is it not? So there needs to be proper consistency um, of, of signage and taking it down as well. And my other thing is you often don't have any warning that roadworks are coming up. And so, yes, of course, people are still going to be speeding coming into the roadworks. Then they slow down. And when they can see that the roadworks are are, um, completed, they speed up. So I I think that there needs to be better behaviour all around, both from the motorist but also around the control of the signage. Wendy? Um, Well, I'm not entirely an expert in um, traffic management plans, but um, I tend to um, totally agree. I think we all have our part to play, and should Waka Kotahi bring in signs, I think um, those those people responsible for the traffic management have to do their part and make sure that you know they adjust the speed limits and take away the signs when they're no, no, no longer necessary. Wendy, I guess my question was really behavioural. Um, 76% of vehicles speeding as they enter a temporary limit and 93% speeding as they leave. Uh, what makes someone want to speed up as they enter a temporary limit zone? You'd think that, am I missing something here or what, Wendy? I think the um, increase in speed is because it's that slower 30k limit and and the driver has decided that it doesn't need to be that, that slow. So they've probably sped up to less than what is the normal speed limit anyway. Um, but again, I think... If there's a lack of enforcement and no deterrent there, people are going to take the risk, aren't they? Very good, Wendy Cura. Where's Wendy Robertson there, uh, who is the National Coordinator of the Driving Change Network. Yes, well, anything to do with road cones gets the... uh uh, gets the listeners texting and as they are now. How about the areas that have cones and speed limits with nothing happening, says Kerry. Exactly. Um, it would help if cones and restrictions actually had something happening. Has anybody heard the story of the boy that cried wolf? So, yeah, um, fair response uh, on that. Um, the panel are NZ National and we will come back to Sugar in breakfast cereals tomorrow. Quite interesting discussion here um, uh, on the back of Heather Roy's I've Been Thinking. And yes, we will come back to climate change for you too. Every day, uh, Wallace. David Cormack. Um, don't you worry. Yesterday we had an interesting one actually of the um, the, 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 the message in a bottle thing. Uh, the, the kids sending a climate change message to Parliament. Uh, you can check it out online actually if you haven't heard it. And by the way, if you have missed an episode of the panel, we are always on iHeart on Spotify uh, and wherever you get your podcast. But to this, ex-Green MP Elizabeth Kerikeri delivered her valedictory speech at Parliament on Wednesday after her resignation from the party in May. As a reminder, Kerikeri was investigated on bullying claims after appearing to call Chloe Swarbrick a crybaby in a text of the caucus. And yesterday she took aim at Green co-leaders James Shaw and... Marama Davidson. I consider this to be an epic failure of leadership. 
I've been a leader for most of my life and mentored many other leaders, especially amongst our young rainbow people. So here's some tips on how to be a good leader. <laughs> if a staff, person or MP expresses concerns with how they're being treated, address it immediately. Follow a good faith and restorative process. If a staff member or MP is bringing concerns about racism or other behaviour from other MPs and senior staff, perhaps address those issues. If allegations have been made about someone, perhaps talk to that person to clarify the facts before you start vilifying them in public. All right, so she took the, uh, Kerikiri also took the opportunity to reaffirm her denial of the uh, bullying allegations. Uh, And to David Cormack, pretty hard-hitting speech uh, justified. I mean, I don't know the ins and outs, but from the exterior, it seems like the Greens actually ran a pretty fair process, to be honest. Like, the, the... the text came out, and I think with the Greens thing, one of the one of the things that I think's lost is that when you're within the Green Party, you work as a collective, and no individual is more important. And so, one of the it wasn't so much the crybaby comment from um, Dr. Kitty Kitty, so much as it was the the complaint that uh, that Chloe's uh, members' bill was being debated at the time, right when risk uh, list ranking was happening, and so it gave her a lot of attention, which would have helped her list ranking. And so, this idea that somehow uh, that sort of individual accord is worth more than what for the good of the collective I think was the most confronting thing and then the leadership said we're going to run an investigation and they invited people to come forward and they had a senior member of staff and a senior MP lead the investigation and then before that investigation could be complete Dr Kitty Kitty elected to, to leave the party and then announce her resignation so I'm not sure if there is actually a better employment process than what the Greens leadership did uh, and we'll never know the result because Dr. Kitty Kitty left before it could be finished. Heather? Yeah, look, I, I am completely ignorant of, uh, other than what's been in the media of the situation, so it's hard to comment. But I, I did think when I read the commentary around uh, Elizabeth Kitty Kitty's um, valedictory speech, there was an element of crybaby there itself. Um, but look, politics is tough. Um, David, when we were having a discussion previously, said that it's a very toxic place, and there's a, uh, you know, the, those are, are two comments about a very um, unusual and highly charged environment, and everybody who's been there has a story of some sort. So I think that, you know, at one level, people should know what they're entering. At another level, I think we all need to do better at behaving well. Do you, while you're both here, do you think that Winston Peters will? Get in, seeing the crystal ball, David. Please, please, please do not vote for Winston Peters. Like whatever you think he's they going can to vote do, for whoever they like. No, it's I know, choice. but yeah. yes, I grant you that. But whatever you think he's going to do, he's not going to do it. He promises a million things and does nothing, and he is a blight on our political landscape. And I, and I, and I, yeah, and right. I absolutely hope he does not. And it looks increasingly likely he will, which makes me very sad. Uh, Heather? It does look increasingly likely like that he will be there um, and I don't think he adds anything much to the mix. So um, my comments, although a little more tempered maybe than David's, are largely, um, are largely from the same place. And uh, if Labour don't get in, will um, uh, Christopher Chris Hipkins step down? I think most likely um, he would be a short-term leader if he if he stayed leader. I reckon he should stick around, have a hoon, because because <laughs> like old mate Luxon's a pretty weak 
leader. And so whoever does stay as leader is a real good shout at, at, at actually, you know, doing some, making some effective hits against against him. So I think Chippy's their, their, probably their best bet. And as a former uh, ACT MP, Heather, what of the role that ACT is on at the moment? Hmm. Well, I'm really encouraged that this election is about the, the minor parties and MMP has taken a long, long time to develop to this point where the smaller parties, which are the ones that have the new, um, innovative, fresh ideas, are finally um, are finally having the opportunity to put those forward. And I say that not just about ACT, but also about the other small parties, so the Greens, but also the Māori Party, uh, TOP. I, I think TOP have got some really interesting ideas, and finally they too are getting a bit of media coverage so that they're being spread more widely, and I think that's very healthy for our democracy. Very good. Great to have you both on, David Cormack, Heather Roy. And I'm Wallace Chapman back tomorrow, Power Ballad Friday, 